বন্দে শ্রীকৃষ্ণ চৈতন্য নিত্যানন্দ সহোদিত করুদায় পুষ্পবন্ত চিত্র শ্রী শ্রী গৌর নিত্যানন্দ কি শ্রী গৌরী বৈষ্ণব গুরু পরম্পরা কি শ্রী শ্রী কৃষ্ণ অর্জুন কি শ্রীমদ ভগবদ গীতা কি ভগবদ্গীতা and in this chapter in particular as well you may recall that the section that we're discussing began with text number 39 and in text 38 Krishna led into this particular section by speaking to Arjuna for those of you who are not familiar with the setting of the Bhagavad Gita The setting is a discussion between Krishna and Arjuna and, and it takes place on a battlefield and ostensibly Krishna is encouraging Arjuna to take part Arjuna is a warrior to take part in a in a battle for the sake of righteousness something like a jihad but um what the Bhagavad Gita if we study carefully is really about is that Krishna is encouraging Arjuna to go to war with his ego and that's what yoga is about so there are many many things out and about these days in the name of yoga in fact apparently yoga has in recent times reached new heights in terms of popularity i was told that and uh, i know that some celebrities have in the past couple of years advocated yoga so maybe it has something to do with it but i was quite surprised in my uh, everyday dealings to run into a couple of people who were they were involved or their wives were involved in yoga and they really didn't know much about it but they were interested in it and they attested to the fact to me that yoga was becoming it was experiencing a revival or uh, going to uh, new heights in terms of popularity but as with anything as profound as yoga is when it's popularized then we tend to get a popularized version of it we're not careful rather than what it's really about so this is what it's really about as i mentioned it's about doing battle with the ego the ego meaning our very sense of self that is a product of identifying with the perception of life that we gather through the senses and the mind as i've said many times the senses our eyes and our tactile sense and our sense of hearing they all kind of reach out and experience what it is that there is and those experiences are relayed like a message to the mind and the mind makes a determination i like this i don't like that this is good this is bad this is happy this is sad and as a result of this each of us is living in our own world world of the mind and the senses determining what's good what's bad what's happy and sad based on this kind of input and obviously my input from my senses is different from your input from your senses there may be some agreement amongst us on a number of basic things but overall this method of ascertaining what life's about what's important what's good and what's bad is going to produce a lot of different opinions and veritably as i say it produces many different worlds many different centers mental centers that are off center and what the real the whole picture is oppressed 
as we are by our minds and senses, it's difficult for us to be the kind of giving person that we sense people should be and that life should be about. Life should be about love and love is about giving. But when we are under the oppression of the dictates of our mind and senses, then we have to be on the take, so to speak. So we are involved in some form of exploitation, no matter how beautifully we uh, portray that or how relatively good that may be in comparison to other types of more gross, obvious forms of exploitation. The fact remains, to the extent to which we ourselves are oppressed by our mind and senses, we are involved in some form of exploitation and taking rather than giving and loving. And this is the predicament that we all find ourselves in. And yoga is, is about making a solution to that. And while the context here, as I say, is a battle and it's a war, which doesn't sound much like love, if we don't take up this battle, we'll never understand the full meaning of love. So, this is what Arjuna is being encouraged to do by Krishna. And at the end of the previous section, text 38, as Krishna led into this section, in that section he was talking about the war based on religious ideals. That kind of thing we see in the world. That's not what Krishna is encouraging Arjuna to participate in. He talked about that because Arjuna argued from a religious point of view that he shouldn't engage in the battle. So Krishna turned it around and said, well, if you want to talk about things from a religious point of view, I can give you reasoning as to why, from a religious point of view, you should engage in the battle. This is, again, not the battle of yoga, but the overt battle that the setting of the Gita takes place in at the onset of a fratricidal war, civil war. So he talked about it for that reason, but he concluded his few uh, six, seven, eight verses in that regard on a note of what yoga was about by encouraging Arjun to fight, but uh, without concern for victory or loss. And uh, he said with some equanimity, with some balance, with regards to these two things that we're always struggling with, victory and loss, uh, happiness and sadness. We try to avoid the distress and secure the happiness. Krishna's telling Arjuna, each of these things are not what they appear to be. The stress is not what it appears to be. The happiness is not what it appears to be. So try to be equally balanced in the midst of these, which are inevitable in this world. We have each of us our share of happiness and distress, and we shouldn't spend our valuable human life in simply trying to minimize the distress and increase the happiness within the framework of this illusory sense of self based on bodily and mental identification. But we should use our human life where we have the opportunity to discuss this, to enter into yoga, which can bring us to the kind of state of equilibrium in which we can tolerate the distress and understand the happiness for what it is, temporary, here today, it's gone tomorrow, and make a life that's not based on moving away from distress in the name of securing happiness, and when happiness turns into distress, as it often does, running away from that, this kind of circle we call in Sanskrit samsara. So to find some balance in all of this means to begin to find yourself Actually, the nature of reality is joyful. And if this sense of self that we're talking about is false and illusory, then the real self that we're interested in, we should pursue there in pursuing that, we'll find real happiness. In the false sense of self, we'll find false happiness. So to find yourself means to begin to find real happiness, and of course that enables us to have the kind of equilibrium that and balance in relation to these goods and bads, hots and colds, happiness and sad, the dualities of, of the mind that we're confronted with 
day after day after day. So Krishna, in a very basic sense, is beginning to talk about what the Bhagavad Gita is really concerned with. It's concerned with yoga. And as I say, yoga is a big term in the Gita. Many things are meant by yoga. But basically, it involves this kind of assault on the ego. Now, when we assault, so to speak, our material ego, it is for the sake of giving room for a real identity to grow. So that's the kind of the higher end of yoga practice. One thing is to get rid of the negative, and the other thing is to bring the positive into focus. So we have a real self, real identity. Ego, in this sense, means identity. We have a false identity, we have a real identity. And the real identity has a life of its own. Once it's released from the mechanism of this uh, body and mind, I've sometimes compared it to uh, the television that you can't get away from. As much as the television requires us to turn it on for it to have meaning, sometimes it takes over our life and our life loses a lot of meaning. So to separate ourselves from this movie (laughs) of the mind is one side of yoga. And the kind of yoga that Krishna is advocating here is really the, as he himself says, the highest form of yoga we'll find as we study Bhagavad Gita. He's going to tell Arjuna to be a yogi in this section. This is what he's encouraging him to do. And as we've seen in this chapter, overtly he's speaking about one kind of expression of yoga, but covertly he's advocating the ultimate yoga that the message of the Gita is about. It is that kind of yoga, yoga of love. We call it bhakti yoga, by which our true sense of self can realize its full potential. Some types of yoga will separate us from the false self, but leave us in a state of suspended animation, if you will. Shanti, shanti, shanti. (laughs) Peace, peace, peace. If there's a war, then we make a truce like now they're trying to make a truce in the Middle East. So truce may stop the fighting, and there may be some sense of peace derived from the truce. But real peace involves the healthy interaction of the parties that were previously opposed to one another. Social intercourse, activity, not just stopping the negative So bhakti yoga, of course, involves that. It seeks to bring us to the full sense of peace, and that is joy. In other words, when there's really peace, then there's no thought of war, and people are free to celebrate. So, we're in the middle of Krishna's advocacy, beginning advocacy of yoga. Ostensibly, he speaks about nishkam karma yoga. Nishkam karma yoga, here. Nishkam karma yoga means that for one who's situated in the plane of karma and is, scripturally speaking, according to the scriptural canon, is bound by the injunctions that govern that plane, can begin to transcend that plane by acting within those principles that scripturally govern that plane without being attached to the the fruits of your efforts. In other words, in the karmic plane of experience, what it's all about is attachment to the fruits of your activity. That's what it's all about. That's what the whole material world is about. And when we say the karmic plane, that's what we're speaking about, the material world. People do things to get things. And why do they do that? Why do they act like that? Because they feel as if they're without. They're bereft. There's something missing in our life. 
Well, reason for that, of course, is that we've identified with an empty, an empty bag. We've identified with the wrapper. We are the goods, <laughs> and we are in the wrapper, and we've identified with the wrapper. And so, this understandably, we are feeling bereft. Something missing in our life. It's us. <laughs> we've missed ourselves altogether. It's passed us by. So. The whole plane, the karmic plane, is about getting the fruits. So, you can't just leave that plane. Just, well, I'll quit today. No. It requires realization, knowledge, experience, and so forth. So, what Krishna advocates is, all right, you're in that plane, and technically speaking, of course, in the context of the Gita, as I say, this is a scriptural canon, and it was spoken at a time when there was a particular social system in place. And that social system was governed by the scriptural canon. So, within the realm of karma, there were designated activities, according to this social structure, for different types of people and so forth. And there were rules that governed their, their lives and so on. Coming from the scriptural canon, one had to live within that framework. So, what Krishna is advocating to Arjuna is, well, that's your position. You live within that frame, but do it in this way. And this is the way out. This is the way to go to a higher plane, to get beyond this. And that is that you work according to your dharma. Dharma, in this sense, meaning your designated uh, role in society. Follow all the guidelines of that, but do it taking out the core of the karmic plane removing it at the core, taking the cancer out, the cancer of attachment to the fruits of your activities, which is perpetuating the whole thing, keeping it in motion. Now, this is interesting because we don't live in the same social structure that Arjun lived in. All those rules aren't in place and all of our roles are not clearly designated and there's no scriptural canon that that is guiding all of our lives and telling us, well, well you're a musician and, uh, and you're a scholar and, uh, and there are guidelines that you have to live with. And so, I mean, there are. We all do have some duties and responsibilities, some, some role that we've uh, developed for ourselves in a general sense. But strictly speaking, the kind of karma yoga that Krishna is advocating can't be practiced. Strictly speaking, the spirit of it, which is, of course, all important, that could be put in place. In other words, we can look at the general social framework that we live in and acknowledge we all have some responsibilities. We have to work, we have to take care of our family and so forth, and we have certain duties, and so we should do them with a spirit of detachment without trying to enjoy the fruits of our work and not trying to enjoy the fruits means, well, what do we do with the fruits? <laughs> there are fruits from our work that we get. Well, what Krishna is advocating here in the kind of Nishkam Karma Yoga that he's advocating, you see that it's similar to Bhakti because beneath his overt advocacy of Nishkam Karma Yoga, as we heard earlier, he's really talking about Bhakti Yoga. The term Buddhi Yoga came up in the beginning of this section in text 39. And we understood it there by carefully analyzing the context to mean bhakti yoga. So what happens in bhakti yoga is what? In bhakti yoga we do everything for God, for Krishna. We do the things that are pleasing to Krishna, for example. We chant Hare Krishna, Krishna's name. We take food offered to Krishna. We explain Krishna's teachings and so forth. So before one is able to do that, entirely spend their whole life in that, well, then they're to some extent under the jurisdiction of karma and the laws that govern that plane. And, and as I'm saying in Bhagavad Gita, of course, this is all very clearly set up. The problem is that we're in a different society. So technically speaking, you can't fully apply. But my point is, wonderfully, bhakti yoga can be applied fully. But we have to develop the eligibility for bhakti yoga. When we acquire eligibility for bhakti yoga, 
than the scriptural rules that govern the plane of karmic activity are superseded. We come under the rules that govern bhakti. And I'm telling you, according to the scriptural canon, the rules that govern the plane of karmic interaction in the, in the Vedic society are extremely troublesome, burdensome, especially for us in this day and age to think about. So if you carefully study the various spiritual disciplines within the, let's say, for example, within Hinduism, which there are many, many of them are discussed in Bhagavad Gita, and you understand the fully the ramifications of them as a path, what's involved, then you can appreciate that bhakti is very, very generous. <laughs> we may think it's hard. Some of you have been practicing bhakti yoga for some time. Well, it doesn't mean that it's easy. It doesn't mean that the basic battle with the ego, that it's at the heart of yoga, disappears. It doesn't mean because you declare, I'm going to be a bhakti yoga, the ego is going to run away. It does get a bit intimidated by that, but pretty persistent and hangs on. Wants to see if you're really going to be a bhakti yogi. Or are you just talking about it? (laughs) So, it's easy, relatively speaking, comparatively speaking. Bhakti is very, very, very generous. What does she seek? How does she qualify one for treading her, her generous path? Only the faith in her efficacy. That's all. Regardless of your position in society, the degree of your knowledge, how smart or intelligent you are, these are not at all considerations. How clean you are. (laughs) Anything. Nothing. Faith in her efficacy she embraces. You can begin. She comes to you. Now, this is all going to unfold, of course, in Bhagavad Gita. But here, tonight, Krishna tells Arjuna very abruptly as we begin with text 47. He's in the middle of talking about yoga. He's been advocating it in different ways and, and encouraging Krishna along these lines. He says, you want to read, Vaish? Karman yivadikaraste ma palishu kadachana ma karma palahetur bhur You are only eligible to act in terms of your acquired nature as a warrior. You are not entitled to the fruits of your action. You should neither be motivated to act by the hope of enjoying the fruits of your action, nor become attached to not acting at all. So, as is mentioned here in the commentary, this verse is kind of abrupt. It sets Arjuna a little bit off balance. Suddenly Krishna says, this is the level of your eligibility. This is what you should do now with regards to what I'm talking about. So at this point in time in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna is telling Arjuna, you have adhikar, eligibility for nishkam karma yoga. He's not telling him he has adhikar for gyan yoga, yoga of knowledge, or bhakti yoga, but nishkam karma yoga. Arjuna, of course, is a great devotee, but as we know, in Bhagavad Gita, he's been put into a kind of illusion by Krishna so that Krishna can, through him, explain so many things that he wants to explain in the course of shedding light directly and indirectly on the glory of bhakti, of devotion, of the yoga of love. So, he is going to now directly advocate this Nishkam Karma Yoga, and we're going to find in his advocacy of it all that's good about Nishkam Karma Yoga. And, of course, then he's going to speak about Jnana Yoga, he's going to speak about Karma Sanyas Yoga, Dhyan Yoga in chapter 6. And this is kind of like the yogic ladder of the first six chapters of the Bhagavad Gita. And what we'll find is the value, the goal, the fruit, if you will, the spiritual fruit of each of these types of disciplines is all found within bhakti and more. So while bhakti is generous and reaches out to to anyone who has faith in her efficacy, those who embrace her should see that they are truly embracing her by making sure or looking to see 
that all of these things in these other systems of yoga that are valuable and important are developing within them. Detachment from the fruits of your work and not in an irresponsible way like I'm detached so I don't do anything. No, doing that work and embracing your duties in society, whatever they may be, fully, but with detachment from the fruits. As I said, bhakti yoga and this nishkam karma yoga, the Christians advocating are, are similar. In the nishkam karma yoga, the fruits should be offered to God for God consciousness, for its propagation, for its practice, and so forth. So, not only detachment, but dutifulness should be developing within us. Mystic insight, gyan, and as mystic insight develops, then even detachment, not only the spirit of detachment, but actual detachment from certain activities that get in the way of cultivating that mystic insight through dhyan, meditation, and intense spiritual practices. So all these things are within bhakti and much more. And so then when we go on then from chapter 7 on, we find so many more things that are in bhakti. So here Krishna says, you have eligibility for nishkam karma yoga. So you're a warrior, you should do your duty as a warrior, and you should be uh, detached from the results of your work. And you should also, besides not being motivated to act based on acquiring the fruits of your work, you should also not become attached to, to inaction. So this whole point of eligibility is a very, very important aspect of Bhagavad Gita and should be important to all of us in all of our lives, even within the context of practicing bhakti. There are different levels of eligibility within bhakti, which will determine how we should practice, in what context, and so on. And as I've mentioned before, Thakura Bhakti Vinod, citing a verse from Bhagavatam that I've cited here, Bhagavatam, 11th Canto, 21st chapter, 2nd verse, it's mentioned, virtue constitutes acting in accordance with one's level of eligibility and acting beyond that, which one is qualified for, is vice. Well, this is a very, very nice point. Bhaktivinoda Thakur very much like to stress this. True beauty, in other words, involves acting appropriately according to your level of eligibility. And what's ugly, conversely, is when people do the opposite. They try to be somebody more than what they are or they're less than what they should be, act in ways that are unbecoming. So, again, and this is relates to the, the central, in a sense, theme of yoga, this kind of balance that we've said, that Krishna said it's about, to find your balance. The duties of the householder and the duty of the renunciate, they are really the same. In bhakti, the householder, the sannyasi, their duty is the same. What is that? To develop love for Krishna but they'll go about it in a slightly different way. And if each applies themselves fully relative to their circumstance and thereby eligibility, then that's true beauty. Each will be good company. So in the school of bhakti, our school, and there are so many levels and it's important for us to kind of hear about the whole thing and know the theory, know what is the goal of prayogen, the ideal, and so forth, but to know where we are in relation to all that so that we can apply ourselves such that we can make progress. One of my students asked, well, how do we go to the next level? I said, by applying yourself on this level. Stop worrying about the next level. See, this is the problem. And how can I go to the next level? We're distracted from applying ourselves on the level that we're on. Progress will come naturally. You'll wake up one day and you'll be on the next level and you'll know what to do. Progress should come naturally, not artificially, not in a forced way, not in an imaginary way, naturally. 
then that will be possible, as I say, if we apply ourselves appropriately according to the level of our eligibility, which we can help determine if we're not well-versed by good association with saintly persons, it can help us to determine what is our position and how we should apply ourselves and so forth. So this point Krishna is making very strongly here as he begins to tell Arjun that you, as far as you, your situation is, you have eligibility for this. Nishkam Karma Yoga. Text 48. Yogashta Kuru Karmani Sangam Tyatva Dananjaya Siddhya Siddhyo Samobhutva Samatvam Yoga Pukshate Perform your duty fixed in the yoga of action, abandoning all attachment to success or failure, a winner of wealth. Such equanimity of mind is what is meant by yoga. So here we mentioned earlier in a previous discussion that this text speaks directly about the equanimity of mind that is what yoga is about and it clarifies for us what Krishna meant in text 38 of the previous section when he told Arjun in the context of being a warrior fight with he used the same word that's used here samatvam equanimity of mind fight do your duty as a warrior without attachment to success or failure, winning or losing. So we draw from this here, see that's what he meant there, and that's of course introduced this whole section about yoga. So he's speaking about the spirit of of yoga, samobhutva, neither overly elated upon acquiring success nor dejected in failure. We should know how these things are acquired why we're successful, why we enjoy a certain amount of success, why we suffer from a certain amount of failure, and how this is all amounts to our implication from since time immemorial in the karmic plane. We have to step back from it a little bit and see that this life that we're experiencing now is but one frame in the movie of our life. We're trying to make an Academy Award winner out of the one frame, and we're being frustrated. It's not as glorious as it should be, but it's, as I say, it's only one frame in the whole reel of the movie of our life. So by stepping back, so to speak, through yoga, spirit of detachment causes us to step back a little bit. We can, we can see our past reaches very, very, very far, and things that we're experiencing now, successes and failures, have their beginnings lifetimes ago. There are successes and failures yet to come in future lifetimes as a result of what we're thinking about today. The whole idea, of course, we want to stop this problem. And the way it works, incidentally, is the point of information in Bhakti Yoga is because we say if you engage in this type of yoga, bhakti yoga in particular, we emphasize in, in your teaching, Gita teaches, that uh, your karma will be eradicated. But we find that still we're getting successes and failures. Even sadhus, saintly persons, seem to be undergoing this. So the idea is that certain karma is manifest now. We call that prarabdha. It's now manifest. It's full-blown, bearing fruit. This body, our material body, is the fruit. That karmic reaction is from what we've done in the past is fructified in this form. So, it's playing itself out. But there are seeds for karma that haven't blossomed yet and borne fruit. So when we practice those reactions that have not yet had chance to come to bear on us entirely in seed form, they're eradicated. So you don't feel you're getting anywhere, but you are. So many things that would have come, that would have propelled you into lifetimes of tribulations, trials and tribulations, it's being eradicated. The last thing to be eradicated is the prarabdha, that which is fully manifest. 
and the strength of bhakti as opposed to any other type of yoga, yoga discipline, is in one sense this, that it has the power to take even the parabdha, karma that's already manifesting, already fully in bloom, to arrest it and eradicate it. In Gyan Yoga, for example, the sadhu, the jivan mukta, who's liberated but in the body, his body is his prarabdha. That's why he's still living in that body. And when that prarabdha plays itself out and finally finishes, he becomes a videha mukta. Then he enters into Brahman. But the devotee, when a devotee becomes mature in this life, then Krishna takes over his body for his purpose. Sanatana Goswami was concerned. He had been in the jungle and he had drunk some water that was contaminated and as a result of it, his body broke out in open sores. And he was on his way to Jagannath Puri to see Sri Chaitanya Dev. And he knew previously at Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's request, I had left the Muslim government in Bengal where I was employed to join him. And as a result of that, I was arrested and I managed to bribe the jailer to get out. And I disguised myself as a Muslim, fakir like that, traveling across the countryside with a long beard and, and long hair. And so I came to Banaris, Kashi, Sriman Mahaprabhu was there. Oh, Mahaprabhu had orchestrated the whole thing. Tapan Mishra had been sent there previously. Chandrasekhar had been sent there. They wondered why Mahaprabhu was sending us to this place. In Kashi, we never hear Krishna Nam. Govinda, Jashodanandana, Sham Sundar. Only Brahman, Brahman, Paramatman, Brahman. All these very indirect ideas about God. Nothing sweet and charming about God, His Leela and real love of God. Why Mahaprabhu was sent us here? Mahaprabhu was going to Vrindavan via Kashi, so he needed some place to stay with devotees. He sent them there. Sometimes it's questioned, if Mahaprabhu is Krishna himself, and he comes with his entourage, Parshadas, his associates, he appears in Nabadvipa. Nabadvipa is non-different from Vrindavan. Why is it then that so many, a number of his associates appeared outside of Nabadvipa? And the answer is that because Mahaprabhu's desire was to take the ideal of love of Krishna and distribute it everywhere. So even amongst his Pashadas, eternal associates, they didn't all appear in Nabadvipa. They're coming from Vrindavan. Why they won't appear in Navadvipa? It's the same place. This is the reason. Some difference in Gaur-lila than Krishna-lila. Some difference. The difference being that it is being made accessible widely, broadly. This can be extended, of course, to the present devotees of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu taking birth all over the world for spreading Mahaprabhu's doctrine of love. Satapan, Mishra, Chandrasekhar, they couldn't understand why we sent to Banaris to this place. There's no devotees here. No talk of love of Krishna. Mahaprabhu was coming that way. He had to stop there. And there he met, by his own arrangement, Sanatana Goswami also. And when he said, someone is at the door. Can you go see who's there? Someone very dear to me, I think. Let him in. So it was Itapan uh, Mishra Chandrasekhar, one of the two went to the door. Mahaprabhu was, I believe, he must have stayed at the house of Chandrasekhar, took his lunch at the house of Tapan Mishra. One of them went to the door of Chandrasekhar. He opened it. He closed it. He said, it's just some Muslim fakir out there. That's all. It looked like he'd been, he hadn't even taken a bath in, in quite some time. Mahaprabhu said, oh, it is him. He came down, opened the door and embraced him. Chandrasekhar was, couldn't quite understand. It was Sanatan Goswami Prabhu. Mahaprabhu showed such affection for him. So thinking like this, when Sanatana was making his way to Puri, by this time, of course, he had 
adopted the dress of the Vaishnava, not only adopted the dress of the Vaishnava, Sanatana Goswami, he invented the dress of the Vaishnava, <laughs> Gaudiya Vaishnava. <laughs> we should understand, if we are Gaudiya Vaishnava, what is the position of Sanatana Goswami, Prabhu? There's a day on our calendar, comes in the summer, July, Guru Purnim, and that is the day of the disappearance of Sanatana Goswami Prabhu. Sanatana Goswami in the Braj villages, he was known as Munda Baba, shaved-headed. So, all the followers of Sanatana Prabhu on Guru Purnim, they shaved their head. He left on that day. This is the great Vaishnav festival, Guru Purnima. And we think of our, in one sense, Adi Guru. Sanatana Goswami was the elder of between Rupa and Sanatana. Although he regards Rupa in a Nityalila as superior to him, in the Sadaka Deha, in the realm of the practitioners, Sanatana Prabhu is senior. If we go to Golok, we'll first offer our regard to Rupa Manjari, and then to Sanatana Prabhu is Labanga Manjari. If we meet them in Gaurlila, in Sadaka Deha, then we offer first to Sanatana Prabhu and then to Shirup. Rupa Goswami considered Sanatana Prabhu as his, who's his elder brother and as his guru. He's in this sense Adi Guru. Mahaprabhu is Samasti Guru of Gaudiya Sampradaya. It means the collective guru. And Vyasti Guru means when that collective guru appears localized. So Sanatana Prabhu, he gave uh, so many directives for us. What is the Sampradaya of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu? He formed the Sampradaya, its rules, its principles, its mode of dress and so forth, all these things, as I say, that while we may say in one sense secondary, and it's true, they have great value at the same time. And are we in the primary position or the secondary position? So if we are in the primary position, then they may not have such bearing. But if we are honest and say, I'm in the secondary position, and we take whatever may be helpful, therefore, Bhakti Nuttak said, Anukul, to come before the deity of Krishna with tilak and uh, dhoti is anukul, favorable. We'll call you progress and make it difficult for you if you're dressed like that to deviate in the public. Though the mind may tempt him. <laughs> so these things have some utilization. And also, as shocking as they may appear and unappealing, it says that uh, it is said the Adbhuta Charit, the wonderful characteristic of Krishna Prem, outside it looks like poison. Inside it is ecstatic, <laughs> joyful. Mahaprabhu is the real example of this. Crying and crying and crying and crying. Hair standing on end as if he had seen a ghost. Teeth chattering, body contorted in so many ways. People will see and think, and you want to be like that? Like an epileptic fit, something like that. Very undesirable, very frightening. But what is the cause of that, inner cause of that, that made him oblivious to the external world? It will make your mental constructs melt the whole conception of the world we have a very concrete conception of the world very fixed we talked earlier our mind is filled with impressions from the senses you know, we've made determinations on that basis that this is good this is bad this is happy this is sad even the most broad-minded person has no idea what it means to be broad-minded this bhakti will melt the mind Broad mind means you can stretch it. <laughs> it's not stiff, it's spacious, it's accommodating. But the, we're talking about melting the mind. Just like, what is the difference between ice and water? Big difference. <laughs> what you can do with ice is cool water. What you can do with water? So many things. So our mind is frozen by so many mental constructs of what life is, 
based on input from the senses and impressions gathered over lifetimes, lifetimes of indulgence with the senses and the mind. This bhakti has the power to melt those constructs. The whole world will melt. What you think to be real, important, make you go on tilt. Mahaprabhu is a good example. Oblivious to the world, his mind melted in love, ecstasy. His body contorted, tears showered, pour from his eyes like from a syringe, bathing people around him, hair standing on end. If we chant very sincerely, we may feel a little bit of this. A little bit may come. You feel your heart swell. Some tears may come. Not ordinary tears. Happy tears. Tears of joy. Tears of in response to how fortunate you've become. How overwhelmingly fortunate you've become, although you're completely unqualified. What a wonderful thing has come to you. A glimpse into what this yoga practice culminates in. A joy that knows no bounds. And the rippling of goosebumps on the skin and hair raising and no interest, no interest whatsoever in interacting with the sense objects with a view to derive pleasure from them. That becomes unpalatable. This is our norm for getting happiness, interacting with sense objects, thinking that we'll find some joy in that. A fullness within that knows no limit. Inside full of joy, outside it may look disconcerting. We have to look inside. We have to look deeply and think deeply if we want to understand about spiritual life. So for the Siddha, like Mahaprabhu, such outside was frightening, but inside we should know that the cause is joy. And for the sadhaka, the practitioner, some things we'll have to embrace that we may find are favorable, helpful. They may not appeal to our mind. They may not look cool by the standards of fashion or whatever may be the case. But if we understand what this is about, we'll think, that's favorable for bhakti. I will embrace it. And then you'll find it's favorable in many ways, actually. Sanatana Goswami Prabhu, he gave us the code of dress, the method of interacting and so forth. Of course, it was all drawn from Mahaprabhu in a sense, but he articulated it and he developed it and so forth. In this sense, he's our Adi Guru. And Sanatana Prabhu, so dear to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, he was going to Puri to meet Mahaprabhu. He had contacted this contaminated water in the jungle, sores coming on his body. So he thought, I'm going to Puri to have the darshan, to be seen by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And the last time he saw me, he embraced me. That was bad enough. I was so unworthy and I was unclean at the time and so forth. But now I have all these sores broken on on my body. So it will be absolutely horrifying to me if he embraces me. And there's a likelihood that he may. This is his nature. He doesn't restrict his love. It extends it everywhere. Anyone and everyone. Regardless of their material condition. So he was thinking like this and he thought, I'll go to Puri, but when I get there, I'll throw myself under the Rathiyatra of Jagannath. Every year there's the procession of Jagannath and these huge chariots are brought and the deity is brought out on it. And it's thought of that if you run over by the chariot accidentally in the crowd, then you're liberated. So he thought, I'll commit some type of Vaishnav spiritual suicide. I'll throw myself under the cart. Then Mahaprabhu will not have to touch me because he'll want to because he's kind, but I cannot tolerate that idea. So all these open sores on my body. Mahaprabhu knew his mind. So before it could happen, he went and grabbed him and embraced him. And all the sores on his body went away. And Mahaprabhu said, this is not fitting for a Vaishnav to do what you had in mind. And besides that, I have many things that I plan to do through you. This is the idea of Jivan Mukta for the Bhakta. While the jnani is liberated 
and waiting for his parabdha, manifest karma, to play itself out, the body drops, he merges into Brahman. The bhakta, his body is taken over. His sadhaka deha, practitioner's body, is taken over by the shakti of Krishna, surup shakti of Krishna, for Krishna's purposes. That's why he keeps a body. So the point is that this bhakti has the power to even eradicate the prarabdha karma. What to speak of the karma that's in seed and so forth that has not yet had a chance to fructify. So be confident about this. It may take some time for the prarabdha to really have that kind of bhakti. But in your practice, so many seeds of karma, karmic implication for lifetimes are being destroyed, eradicated by chanting Krishna Nam. Such power is there. So bhakti, very generous, very powerful, very comprehensive. Love is comprehensive. The yoga of the body will be one thing. Hatha yoga, karma yoga, yoga of the intelligence, gyan, that will be another thing. Yoga of the heart, of love, then all-inclusive. So, anyway, this is Krishna's advocacy in Gita, bhakti yoga. And even when he's here stressing nishkam karma yoga, it's for the purpose of indirectly shedding light on the glory of bhakti. The spirit of yoga is stressed here, this equanimity of mind. And Krishna says, O winner of wealth, he used this, this name to address Arjun in the verse we just discussed, 48, and also in 49. Dhananjaya, O winner of wealth, action motivated by desire to enjoy the results of one's work is far inferior to, and this is a whole other topic, disciplined intelligence. Take refuge in wisdom. Those whose actions are motivated by the desire to enjoy the fruits of action for themselves are miserly. Kripana, 